0: When you say the words hallelujah, you are saying praise Yahweh. If you didn't know that, uh, we finished that song singing over and over again praise to the Lord, praise to the Lord, praise to the Lord. And that's what we're here to do this morning. I hope that's why you're here this morning um, on the last day of the year. You may be here with family, you might be visiting Four Corners for the first time. I want to welcome you. Um, and what we're here to do this morning is to. Uh, do just what we sang, which is to praise Yahweh. We have no other reason to gather uh, with this many people on a Sunday morning, other than uh, because uh, we serve a God that has redeemed us, and we're here to to worship Him and be reminded of all that He has done for us. Happy New Year! <clears throat> I uh, I realized this morning as I was driving to finish preparation that um, I, I have preached the bookends of 2023. I preached January 1st uh, last year, or this year, I suppose, and uh, now uh, New Year's Eve of 2023, December 31st. So it's a pleasure to be able to bookend your year if you happen to be here on both of those days. Um, I trust that over the last week or so, you've, you've been uh, able to uh, consider and meditate what we heard last week, which was the earth-shattering news that God has become man, uh, on Christmas Eve last Sunday and then again at our Christmas Eve service, Lonnie took a break from Exodus and focused on John 1.14. That one verse that, that the word has become flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. I hope that's, that's been something you've been able to think on and I hope that's something that will animate you as you move into the new year. <clears throat> Courtney was praying this morning in the green room before we started, just acknowledging how this, this time of year brings all kinds of things with it for various people. For some of us, it's purely a time of, of, of celebration and, and reflecting on the goodness of Christ and, and all that he's done for us. And for others, it's a hard, difficult time of year for, for various reasons, and undoubtedly many here have come in with in, any of those uh, two ends of the spectrum or somewhere in between, maybe. But um, I hope you know that here this morning we are here to to serve and worship wherever you came from, however you came this morning, whatever is freighted on your shoulders or perhaps not. We're here to worship the God who became man. And until Christ comes back, we will be working out the implications of what that means for us. As I mentioned, uh, we have been in Exodus as a church. If you're you're visiting, that's been our our normal pattern as a church. We're walking through Exodus right now. We're on the tail end of the golden calf incident, so we are nearing the end of the book. It won't be too much longer. Uh, But um, as I've had the opportunity to preach, we've also been walking through Philippians. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I'm not going to do a full recap of Philippians as I've been accustomed to doing. If you've, if you've been following along, I know it's been a couple of years, chances are you've, you've heard that several times, so I'm not going to do a full recap of Philippians, but where we have been most recently was at the end of chapter 3. And the end of chapter 3 is, is, uh, is unique in that Paul, it, it, he transports us, he transports the reader Uh, all the way forward to the new heavens and the new earth when we have uh, glorious, resurrected, transformed bodies to be like Christ and we are with Christ. He speaks of our citizenship being in heaven. We're awaiting a Savior. He will transform our bodies, our lowly bodies, to be like His glorious body. So at the end of chapter 3, Paul has us transported to the new heavens and the new earth, to the end consummation of all things. And he uses that as a point to say there will come a time when we will will be with Jesus and we will truly know him because we will be like him. We will will finally be like the one of surpassing value that he mentions in chapter 3. And he uses that point, that future vision, as a way to animate our present walk in the Lord. Paul uses this future vision as a means to animate our present walk. So at the end of chapter 3, we have been on a mountain peak, as it were. Today's text, though, in Philippians 4, Paul moves from the heavenly realities of future resurrection in life with Christ, perfected in heaven. He moves from that mountain peak back down to practical, earthy, messy real life. The kind of life that we all live in every day. The kind of life that we can't escape because this just is what life is. It's a seamless transition, Paul, going from these high and lofty realities back down to the real world. And it's something I've noticed as I've preached through Philippians that I hadn't noticed before, even when I was studying to prepare for preaching through. I had never noticed before the way that Paul maintains throughout the letter both the realities of earth and the glories of heaven at the same time. In the same hand, Paul holds the realities of earth and the glories of heaven at the same time. He has this heavenly mindset where he is overwhelmed with the prospect of being with Christ and being like Christ. So in a sense, Paul's head is in the clouds. Yet, This heavenly mindset is matched by an earthy groundedness. Paul is never not fully sober and aware to the responsibilities and the difficulties of life and relationships in the flesh. Both of these things he has in his windshield at all times. He is a man planted squarely in the middle of two worlds. And we've heard this tension from him before, particularly in chapter 1, as he's reflecting on his own situation in prison. If if I'm to remain in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and it's to your benefit. But if I'm to depart and be with Christ, that's far better. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. That's his his wrestling in chapter 1. That's the same passage where he says that famous verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain. So as we see this, uh, this, this in Paul, this tension between these two things that he holds not in tension but perfectly together, I think it's worth considering here. Before we even really dive into the text, do we have both of these in view? The realities of earth and all that comes with it and the glories of heaven and all that that will be? Probably the case that most of us are dominated by the realities of earth. No, it, 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 it's, it's what we live in. It's what we see every day. It's in our face. If we're going to err, probably we're going to err by, by being overwhelmed and, and to, to, a, to a, a bad degree by the realities of earth. But it's also possible that one may be, as it were, distracted, if you could be such a thing, By the glories of heaven in such a way as to be aloof to this world. So ignorant of our responsibilities. I think the Thessalonians are a good example of this this error with the seesaw. So it seems to be the case that in Thessalonica when Paul writes to them, some folks were so convinced that Christ's return was imminent, like tomorrow. They were quitting their jobs and they were just hanging out and waiting and of course, it was causing all kinds of problems, and they were having to rely on people financially, and they weren't fulfilling their responsibilities. So it's possible then that the glories of heaven in Thessalonica, at least what they thought, were doing the exact opposite. It was causing them to be ignorant to the realities of earth, when in reality, they're meant to give purpose and intentionality to all that you do not to cause you to just stick your head in the clouds and ignore real life. Paul's head is in the clouds and it's in real life at the same time. That's what I want us to see. Do you have both the realities of earth and all the responsibilities and the soberness that comes along with it in view alongside of the glories of heaven in the way that animates our present life? There seem to be the two things Paul is carrying with him as he writes to the Philippians. It's no wonder then that this entire letter is full of appeals to gospel living. That's the title of the sermon this morning, Final Appeals to Gospel Living. Throughout the letter, Paul is not so much concerned, or at least not so much addressing, the content of the gospel. He's not really addressing doctrinal content Although there's some of that. We have in chapter 2, we have the, the incarnation and the resurrection and the, the, uh, uh, the uh, ascension of Christ. And in, in chapter 3, we have Paul talking about uh, righteousness by faith and not by works. But even, even there in those glimpses of gospel content, the logic and in the, in the logic of the letter, those are just there to support the need for gospel living. That's what Philippians is about. See, the message of the gospel is that the God-man, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to take your sin, pay your debt, and reconcile you to God. And then in rising from the dead, he secured that redemption for all who believe in him. So if you're here this morning not as a Christian, you should know that's the only way to God. To, by faith, believe in that good news and then hand your life over to Christ but for those of us that are Christians every decision every action every breath is completed in light of that gospel it's not just for the moment of salvation it's for every step of life it's living in light of the earthquake of the gospel in our lives The the tremors of that earthquake extending to every corner of our hearts, disturbing every part of life and reshaping us into the image of Christ. That's what Philippians is about. Living in light of the earthquake of the gospel. Not so much the content of the gospel, but what does it do to you now? So as Paul comes to the end of his letter to his friends in Philippi, He's still working out the earthquake of the gospel as he gives four final appeals to gospel living. Those four final appeals we'll see are unity, joy, peace, and excellence. But first, would you please stand and let's read this text, and then we will pray. Philippians chapter 4 Verses 2 through 9. I entreat you, and I entreat Syntouche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. He will help us. God, we turn to you now, knowing that this is what we feed on. As Christians, our food is much more than bread and water. It is the very words that come from your mouth. So God, help us to treat your word like the food that it is, like the food that we need. And here, as we come to it, I pray, God, that you would nourish us, You would convict us with your word, you would encourage us with your word, you would would point out blind spots with your word that by your spirit you might apply this text to our hearts because it is profitable and it is for us now this morning. It's your name we pray all these things, amen. I do want to mention too, uh, welcome to all of uh, the kids, it's a fifth Sunday which means we We get all of our younger kids with us here this morning, too. So uh, welcome, you guys. Um, Hopefully, uh, these words are pretty easy for you to see. So I would encourage you, if you can, write them down. And at least try to leave with unity, peace, joy, and excellence in mind. Because I bet you'll recognize some of these things that we're talking about. It's common in Paul's letters, as he nears the end of what he's saying, for him to close with a kind of rapid-fire exhortation. He does this in many of his letters. Uh, you'll probably recognize it um, if you read various, uh, the ends of his, his epistles. Uh, sometimes these are long, seemingly uh, stream-of-consciousness instructions uh, from Paul. They often seem rather staccato, kind of short bursts of instructions that may be disconnected from each other, but grouped together as a final appeal before signing off with Greetings. And this is a, a shorter one, but what we have is that kind of exhortation in today's text. But my last chance to get a few, to cram a few things in before I say goodbye. And we see that here with these appeals to unity, joy, peace, and excellence. The first appeal Paul gives is to unity, verses two and three. I entreat Euodia. And I entreat Suntuke to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Apparently, there's a situation in Philippi that is threatening the unity of the church. These two women, Yodia and Suntuke, And they are embroiled in some kind of disagreement. Uh, It's likely the case that when Epaphroditus delivered this letter to Rome, uh, to Paul, he informed them of what's going on. Hey, Paul, uh, this is what's happening right now in the church, and it's kind of a big deal of course, we don't know the nature of the disagreement. Paul didn't need to go into detail. It would have been obvious when it was read. Maybe. maybe when it was read, it was the elephant in the room. And when these two ladies' names were mentioned in the same sentence, everybody kind of you know, started like, doing this and squirming a little bit, knowing this, knowing what's going on. He didn't really need to go into detail. Everybody knew what it was he was referring to. And for Paul to do this in this way is really unique. This is rare for Paul in, public, in his public letters, meaning those epistles that are written to churches or a church or groups of churches, this is the only time that he publicly admonishes individuals by name. Uh, he mentions people's names, but not in this way. And the only other time he admonishes someone by name is in a private personal letter to Timothy. This is the only time in a public letter where he calls out by name in an admonishment to individuals from the church. And and that Paul would do this, I think it suggests two things. Number one, it suggests that this is not a little disagreement. Again, we don't know what it is, but it is unparalleled in Paul for him to do this. Just consider all the appeals to unity that we have heard in Philippians. Uh, Make sure you're standing firm together, partnering together, being of the same mind. It's very possible that Paul has tailored the letter up to this point to speak indirectly to this situation that he now brings up very directly. So it's probably not a little disagreement. But we also need to not overreact. Paul speaks very highly of these women They have labored with him in the gospel, labored side by side. Their names are written in the book of life. We don't need to panic here. Paul's not panicking. We don't need to think or or understand these women to be causing some kind of cancerous faction in the church in Philippi. Whatever it is that Paul tells them to agree suggests that this is a surmountable disagreement. But whatever it is, it's just that for now, they're not on the same page and everybody knows it. Number two, that Paul would mention this publicly, I think suggests a deep connection, not only with these women, but with the whole church. These suggests a deep connection between Paul and the church. He, he is confident that he has enough pastoral capital stored up with the church, that this explicit public admonishment is not going to derail their relationship. In an ironic way, speaking this hard truth in this way actually reinforces their fellowship. It doesn't threaten it. Speaking this hard truth is actually a reinforcement, not a threat to their relationship. I wonder if we think of fellowship in that way. You know, earlier in the letter, fellowship was a, was a big theme. And there, we, we noticed how fellowship is, is a mutual partnership in Christ where we exercise the gospel worked out in each other's lives. As we relate to one another, we are exercising the gospel worked out. That's what fellowship is. So, Think of your relationships that you are building as you die in community. Whether you're a member of this church or whether you're visiting and you're a member of another church, think of your relationships that you are building as you die in community. If your relationships are too brittle for hard truth like this, then it's not fellowship that you're building, it's not gospel partnership that you're building. It is a facade. It is a veneer of friendship, masking self-centeredness underneath. If your relationships are too brittle for this kind of hard truth, it is but only a veneer, masking self-centeredness underneath. It, It may be masking the fear of man that prevents you from speaking hard truth. That you need to. Or it may be masking pride that doesn't want to hear hard truth from others. Either way, if your relationships are too brittle for this kind of thing, then you need to reassess what it is you think is happening here. We don't exist for a veneer, don't don't come here merely for a facade of friendship. You can get that anywhere. That's not what the church is for. Paul's example and what we want to be about is that real fellowship in the gospel leads us to guard one another's lives. And at times, that includes saying hard things. At times, that includes bringing out the truth of the gospel where others are not living it. And of course, we do so with all of the speck and log conversation that Jesus mentions. We don't, we don't disregard that. But that's what it means to, to live in fellowship and partnership with one another. That's what the gospel leads us to do. So Paul's comments here of admonishment, as public as they may be, are a loving and kind protection. Not only for these women, but for the whole church. Why? Because they are partners with him in the gospel, and that's what gospel partners do. Specifically, he calls them to agree in the Lord. This has been a familiar note in Philippians. In chapter 2, verse 2, he calls the church to be of the same mind. Then in chapter 2, verse 5, he calls them to have the same mind of Christ. And we have the same word here in 4-2. Literally, it's think the same things. Or you two ladies be of the same mind with the qualifier in the Lord. It's as if he's saying, look, let your partnership in Christ be the thing that animates your horizontal relationship. Remember what I laid out? In chapter two, they didn't have chapters. Remember what I laid out earlier about the mindset of Christ and his, how his infinite humility led him to step out of heaven and die on a cross and how that's an example of counting others more significant than yourselves and looking to the interest of others. Remember that? Do that. That's what Paul is saying. Let the mind of Christ shape this relationship. The way you work out the gospel is to let the example of Christ in his humility and his others-orientedness dictate how you two relate. And not just you two, but Paul calls others into the fold. There, some individual, a true companion, again not mentioned but would have been obvious to the people, is called in to help mediate And then we also have him refer to Clement and the rest of his fellow workers who have labored alongside him and these women. This whole group serves as a testimony to their work together, contending for the gospel. I can't help but notice here, the Christian life is a community life. The task of living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ by definition, requires striving side by side with others in the gospel. Gospel living is not intended to be solitary living. So we live out the gospel not in solitude, but in fellowship, in partnership, in community, with unity as a glue. So what happens when born-again, Jesus-loving sinners link arms for the gospel. Well, by God's grace, some fruit is born. And then eventually, or maybe on the first day, the flesh comes out. That's what happens. That's what happens. Now, this situation happened to be engraved in Holy Scripture. Poor Euodia and Sintuke, Right? So we we tend to think, we tend to hold up these two women as as if they're the paradigm of, you know, the feuding sisters of Philippi or something. But every single church in history, this happens in. This is not extraordinary. This is not spectacular. What Paul is saying is, look, expect this, right? We, We are realistic as you live out your fellowship here at four corners expect to see the flesh in others and expect for them to see yours by the way as you link arms in the gospel when the flesh when the flesh comes out live a fully formed christian life shaped by the mind and the example of christ both in the vertical and the horizontal I think that's what we see with this situation. Yes, it's a significant disagreement. Yes, it needs to be remedied. Yes, it may be a threat to the unity of the church. But this is not extraordinary. Paul simply said, I've already laid out the kind of life that we are to live. And when you live this kind of life with the mind of Christ, these things take care of themselves. So agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. I want to appeal to those of you who may be living a life tangent to the body. Perhaps near, but not striving together side by side. That language is a little strong. You may be aware of others, but not linked with them in any kind of meaningful way. I, I hope Philippians... It gives you a longing for this kind of fellowship. If you were to just to take Philippians at face value, you would not think Paul has a category for such tangential relationship to the body. I think such a thing would be foreign to him, given the way he writes in this letter. I want to read this quote from Kent Hughes. He says, Those who follow hard after Christ live with tensions and troubles that the uncommitted heart does not know. So yes, following Christ and partnering with his people does come with the potential for tension and trouble when the flesh comes out. You and I are sinners still after all. But therein lies the opportunity to exercise the mind of Christ as you are being transformed into his image. Yes, the opportunity to exercise the mind of Christ. In, in, in the same way that God has designed marriage to be a sanctifying agent in your life if you're married, God has designed the body of the church to be a sanctifying agent in your life. So to, to keep the church at arm's length is to spurn the agent of God's sanctifying grace that's held out for you. To intentionally keep the church here is to say, no thanks God, I don't want to grow in that way. I don't want to be made like Christ in that way. Our hearts are by nature self-centered and self-preserving and defensive. The gospel, however, is the good news of Jesus Christ who had the right to be self-centered. That's the point of Philippians 2.6 yet he laid it down for the good of others. So it's him that we follow. Paul calls these ladies and the Philippian church and Four Corners Church to work out this mindset of Christ with one another. And as we do do that, we are working unto unity. We are working unto unity to use the language of this letter, we are working unto standing firm in one spirit, to striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are working unto being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, he says in chapter two. Well, if unity and partnership and fellowship have been peak themes in Philippians, no less has been joy, Only one chapter earlier, Paul wrote in in chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And now again, he writes here in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, rejoice. It seems relevant that Paul would go here again at the end of the letter, Uh, maybe because it's on the heels of this sticky situation and it's kind of awkward, with these two ladies uh, maybe it's in light of the opposition they're facing you know we don't typically think of Philippians as as a letter of suffering and opposition but Paul has mentioned so more than once in chapter one he tells them to not be frightened by their opponents apparently there's a need for them to have to stand firm in the gospel uh, they're engaged in some kind of conflict maybe it's a conflict with the governing authorities that we don't know or maybe, maybe they're burdened by Paul's situation and the opposition he's facing in Rome in prison. But for all of these reasons, Paul issues the reminder that joy is to be a constant note of music in their life. Rejoice always. Again, rejoice. This is a defining characteristic of the Christian life. It's not self-fabricated joy. It's it's produced by the Holy Spirit. This is the, the second of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy. In Galatians 5, gospel living is joyful living. Always. Gospel living is always joyful living and such constancy is possible because The person of God is the source from which our joy springs. His his mercy and his kindness, his goodness, his, his patience lead us to rejoice in him, even when everything about the situation would lead us to the opposite. Think of, to use a Philippian example, think of Paul and Silas in prison in Acts 16 in Philippi. They've been wrongly jailed, but at midnight, what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing hymns to God. Maybe a little bit of fear and uncertainty. Undoubtedly, though, with joy. Why with joy? Because they are held by the God of heaven. Consider where Paul is as he writes to the Philippians over and over and over to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, rejoice. Paul is writing these words in prison in Rome. The Philippians are better off than he is. And he's telling them to rejoice. He's not riding from some carefree ivory tower. It's easy to rejoice when you're sitting on the beach or when you're on vacation in a cabin in the mountains, there's the coffee and the cup and the fire, and you know. I, well, I don't know about you. In my stage of life, the words vacation and relaxing don't go together very often. That's the case for many of you. But you get what I mean. It's easy to rejoice in those situations. It's easy to rejoice after you receive the Christmas bonus, right? I want to read this. I just can't improve on this, uh, this quote from Moise Silva. who's a, one of the Philippian commentators that I enjoy. He says this, Clearly, Paul does not have in view the kind of superficial happiness that manifests itself only when things go well. No, it is a rejoicing that can be had always because it depends not on changing circumstances but on the one who does not change. Regardless of the circumstances, whether in prison in Rome or on a white sandy beach, when the bell of your life is struck... May it ring with joy. Looking away from changing circumstances to the one who does not change reminds us once again that even rejoicing is an act of looking away from self. Even rejoicing is an act of looking away from self. The more you gaze here, the harder it will be to rejoice. But, Conversely, the more you gaze at Christ, the more you ruminate on his glory and chew on his grace, the more you sit with him in his word, or to use the language from Colossians 3 that Jared read, the more you seek the things that are above where Christ is seated and you set your mind there, the more you will ooze joy. This is a good time to reflect on the year past When the bell of your life is struck, is it joy or is it a minor key? One of the black keys. Is it a minor key of discontentment and complaining and just never quite satisfied? Is that what the tone of your life rings out with? Well, your lack of joy is not due to your circumstances. Changing your circumstances will not produce joy, if that's what you're counting on. Don't look forward to 2024 for a change of circumstance to improve your course of life or to to fabricate some kind of joy. The lack of joy in your life, if there is a lack of joy, is due to an overabundance of self. If there is a lack of joy in your life, it is due to an abundance of self. So, friends, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. It matters not your income or your health status or your stress level or your happiness. A life reconciled to God, purchased by the blood of Christ, and applied by the new birth of the Spirit will be a joy filled life. It will. Closely related to joyfulness is reasonableness or gentleness. You know, joy is a visible thing. When you, when you run into somebody that's, that's joyful, it is evident. It is obvious when their joy sort of exists outside of their circumstances. And that ought to be the case. Gospel living ought to be evident to the world, no? Paul, Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 15, that we, we work out our salvation in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. So here in verse five, Paul encourages them to have a gentleness, not just among each other, but evident to everyone. Let your reasonableness, or if you're in the ESV, you have a footnote that that points you to gentleness. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The idea seems to fit with the opposition that they may be facing here, even though they might be in the right, objectively speaking, say their opposition may be against the governing authorities, they may objectively speaking be in the right. They may even have the law on their side. But what honors God is not to to make a scene and to demand fairness and to get what's theirs. After all, they serve a Jesus who undertook the most unfair assignment in all of history? He did not get what was his. He gave up what was his. That's the point of 2 6 when Paul writes that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to. Paul is saying, Look, let your, your gentle reasonableness be known to everyone. You don't have to demand what's yours. Now, don't, don't overapply this. He's not calling for some kind of, you know, sweeping injustice under the rug. But Paul is saying, let the effects of the gospel be seen in your, your gentle forbearance with others. And let that be evident. Two final appeals to gospel living that we have seen so far are unity and joy. As we move into verses 6 through 9, we come to verses that are probably ultra-familiar. If you've been in the church for a while or been around the Word for a while, and someone starts a sentence with, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, you could probably finish that with something close to, by prayer and petition, make your request be known to God. I think that's the way the NIV puts it. But read verse 6 and 7 with me. Actually, I'll back up to the last part of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace is what we come to with this third appeal to gospel living. As with the call to rejoice, the call to peace and to cease from anxiety is also appropriate given the Philippian situation, at least from what we can discern. We've already talked about how there's active opposition. There may be the potential for disunity that weighed heavy, not to mention the daily battle of faithful Christian living. Particularly in a, in, a, in a Roman colony that might have come with all kinds of civil and financial consequences for living a life devoted to Christ. So, Paul is calling them to cease from anxiety. Even if, though, there are some there that aren't particularly anxious, the, the temptation to succumb to anxiety is is universal. Who among us has not been anxious? Who among us has not been worried about the unknown or lacking in faith and trust and contentment? So, even if the Philippian situation does not invite this word, it is timely nonetheless. The human condition can always use the call to not be anxious. The words from Paul are relatively straightforward. Do not be anxious about anything. It's straightforward, but not necessarily absolute. Uh, the, 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 the theme of anxiety in the New Testament is too broad for it to be absolute. In many areas, we have uh, Paul and, and, and others speaking of ang- anxious, anxiety, or concern in a, in a positive light. Uh, in this letter, for example, we see it. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul refers to Timothy's genuine concern for the Philippians. Uh, or in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul refers to the members of the church having the same care, the same concern, the same anxiety for one another, the same anxious concern for one another. And I want to read this, uh, these few verses in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Worldly things. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So he's speaking of being anxious to please the Lord, a husband anxious to please his wife or a wife her husband. Surely Paul is not saying it's wrong to want to please the Lord. Of course not. What he's saying is there is a good and a right concern We have about things and about about others. I want to point out these distinctions to say that Paul is not calling the Philippians to not have concerns. Do not be anxious about anything does not equal do not be concerned about anything. That's not what Paul is calling to. Undoubtedly, he has Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in mind. I want to read those from uh, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, verses 25 through 34. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus adds some specificity to the kind of anxious we are not supposed to be. And what we see there in Jesus' words is an anxiety over future provision. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? It's an anxiety that is born out of little faith. What this is, at its core, is anxiety about the unknown. Hence, Jesus' words at the end, do not be anxious about Tomorrow, I think it's safe to say, given Jesus' words and Paul's words, which we get fairly extensive on this, this subject of anxiety. Safe to say, there is a kind of anxiety that is sinful because of its forgetfulness and its faithlessness. It, 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 it's forgetful. That the Lord that clothes even the flowers will surely clothe me. It, it's faithless because it trusts not in God's provision, but dwells on the uncertainty of what's to come, once again, is looking like this: back towards self. I don't think we can escape the category of sinful anxiety when we read Paul's and Jesus's words. Now, let's be careful. We're not painting with an absolute brush. We're not disregarding the real presence of uh, clinical issues or chemical imbalances. I certainly am not in a position to say those things don't exist. We've already seen uh, right concern, right anxiety, But what I am saying is that on the basis of Jesus and Paul's words, especially in our age that is dominated by the therapeutic, that that defaults to see anxiety as something, as a disorder to which any of us may fall victim at any time, we need to recover the biblical category of sinful anxiety. And even if there are clinical issues and and real chemical imbalances, we need to recognize the blurry line between the psycho and the somatic, between the body and the mind. There may exist real mental abnormalities and sinful anxiety in the same mind, in the same heart. So if you find yourself to be a particularly anxious person, Rather than starting by altering your environment or, or finding some coping mechanisms, your first response needs to be repent. That's what we do as Christians with sin, is we identify it, we don't deflect it like we're prone to do, like Adam did in the garden. We don't simply say, "Well, I'm prone to anxiety." No, I sin in my anxiety because it is faithless and it's forgetful. See, the issue at stake with anxiety is not out there. If anxiety is a sin, or if at the very least, there is a category of sinful anxiety, the issue at stake is not out there, it's in here. Yet again, the issue is in here. The battle here is not waged externally. It's waged in the heart. See, the external battle would wage against anxiety by saying, I'm going to become anxiety-free by becoming worry-free. If I can just eliminate my responsibilities, if I can just pare down those anxiety-inducing elements of my life, then I can eliminate my anxiety, eliminate my concerns, eliminate my anxiety. But the solution does not lie in paring down life to the bare minimum responsibilities. That's not the solution Paul offers. It's not that, okay, I'm at an eight, if I can just get down to a two, then I won't be as anxious. Rather than an external battle, the path to anxiety free is waged internally in prayer. Paul moves directly to the anxious antidote in verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. There's no magic formula. There's no ultra spiritual path or words to say. Pray and cast your anxieties onto your Father. That's what Paul calls us to do here. Do you have requests? Do you have apprehensions? Have you talked to your father about them? That's what Paul asks us to do. It's not that we need to inform God so he can stay up to date on our wish list. Prayer in the face of anxiety is an acknowledgement of our dependence on God and our complete trust in Him to provide according to His good pleasure. When we pray in the face of anxiety, we are depending on God and we are acknowledging our complete trust in Him. You see, what's really happening in the anxious, non praying heart is continued dependence on self. That's where the sin is a refusal or a forgetfulness to acknowledge God as creator and provider and sustainer. And yet the posture that prayer requires of us is a posture of dependence and trust. And we pray with thanksgiving, which further requires a posture of humility, knowing that we bring only empty hands to our Father. Anyone who has been anxious knows our hands are empty. If they were full, we could do something about it. But they're empty. That's the whole point. When we pray, we can't help but humbly bring empty hands to our Father. With thanksgiving, knowing that our lives lie in the palm of His hand and whatever we receive from Him is good. Whatever we receive from Him is for our good whether it seems that way or not. And when we reproach God in this way, in the face of anxiety, the result is a peace that passes understanding. All human logic and previous experience may point to this being a hurricane, a heart of, of chaos and apprehension and fear and panic, but instead the peace of God acts as a guard, over your heart and your mind in a way that is simply inexplicable. And I've, I've talked with some of you, I've walked through things with some of you, and I know you have with others as well, where you see this. There's just this inexplicable peace. Where does that come from? Well, it's not, it's not worked up. You know as good as I do. You can't make yourself peaceful. You can't fabricate that. You can put on a happy face You can twist your face into a forced smile, but you can't fabricate peace in your heart. It comes from the Spirit. When we humbly and with thanksgiving admit our dependence and our trust on God in prayer and we let Him know. If you have trusted in the gospel by faith, such peace is already yours. We've been talking about how the gospel, uh, Philippians shows us the gospel worked out, gospel living. Well, I, I want us to see how both the content of the gospel and the outworking of the gospel both result in our peace. And they both require dependence and trust. See, the content of the gospel tells us we bring nothing to our salvation, the same kind of open, empty Hands. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah says in chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We bring nothing. It only requires of us dependence on the grace of God and trust in the atoning work of the Son. And when we believe that by faith, the result is peace. Peace. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The result of the gospel in your life is peace, reconciliation with God. In the same way as we work the gospel out in the face of anxiety, we bring nothing, we rely on God independence, we trust him in thankful prayer, and the result yet again is The peace of Yahweh guards and guides our hearts and our minds. The appeals to gospel living we have seen are unity, joy, peace, and now finally excellence. Verses eight and nine really form the final appeal of the letter. The rest of the verses. Paul will be taken up with thanksgiving, some more analysis of his situation, and then then final final greeting. So what we have in verses 8 and 9 really is Paul's last appeal in the letter. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 8 really is a a striking feature of this letter. As Paul lists off in rapid succession eight virtues for for the Philippians to consider. And there really is nothing quite like this in the rest of Paul's letters. We have Various virtue lists that, that Paul gives. more often we have vice lists. but we have various virtue lists. One such example is what Jared read this morning in Colossians three: 12 to 13. So as for example. Paul says there, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's a good example of a typical virtue list in Paul. But what we have here reads differently in Philippians 4, 8. Most scholars recognize this list. It, it bears a striking resemblance to virtue lists found in Greek literature. Now, you might often think of you know, pagan Greek in Roman society as if they were just absolute unhinged savages. But that that's not really the case. I mean if you if I haven't read a ton, but you know, or I, I, as I read this week, I, I heard comments. On, you know, if you read Plato and Aristotle, what you see is a is a premium placed on moralistic virtue. These are not unhinged savages just murdering each other with no sense of right and wrong. Yes, it was a godless moralistic virtue, but a virtue nonetheless. And it was Plato who first identified the the four cardinal virtues of what would become. Hellenistic society or Greek society as, as Hellenism spread throughout the Mediterranean. It was the, the virtues that Plato first identified: prudence, which is like wisdom, justice, fortitude, which was another word for courage, and temperance, which is another word for self-control. So the virtues of wisdom, justice, courage, and self-control were, were bedrocks. Of of Greek and Roman society. So what Paul calls the Philippians to consider here, that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy, seems to have root in these moralistic pagan virtues of Greek society. So if that's the case, you may be wondering, what in the world is Paul doing? He spent all this time in the letter encouraging us in the gospel to live out its effects, to to prize Christ above all things. And then at the end, he he introduces pagan moralistic virtue as something else to be held up and prized. Seems odd. Well, I wanna offer this answer to the question from one commentator who says, having repeatedly stressed the stark antithesis between the mind of Christ and the mind of the world, Paul now offers a cross-cultural Christian exhortation in the language of Philippi. We could see this as a cross-cultural Christian exhortation in the language of Philippi. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. So this may very well have been routine language, routine things thought and heard and debated. This is another example, I think, here of Paul's earthy groundedness that we talked about at the beginning. You know, all this talk of anticipating heaven and valuing Christ does not lead us to abandon the world in the way God made it. Wherever it may be found, we can still embrace beauty and virtue and aesthetic, only now we do so in a cruciform way we do so with a with a Christ like mind the full message of the letter at this point would read any uh, reader who's paying attention to hear these things greek as they may be and interpret them with the mind of Christ of course in themselves of course such things are empty godless moralism that does not save and does not satisfy. But where Christ is all-sufficient, these common grace virtues then become truly valuable. I thought this was helpful from Walter Hansen, who writes, Ultimately, life in Christ brings to fulfillment the highest moral aspirations in the surrounding culture. So we do not honor God by emptying ourselves of all things earthy, but actually by filling up on everything designed by God. We don't need to be Gnostics that just reject all things material, the beautiful and everything else. We don't need to be ascetics that just reject all pleasure. That's why Piper talks about Christian hedonism. We actually actually seek pleasure baptized in Christ. And I think that's a bit of what's going on here. Paul's hope at the end of the letter is not for Philippians to reject what's in the world simply because it's in the world. Rather, he wants them to redeem what even the world can identify by seeing it in light of Christ. You know, I think this calls us to a ruthless elimination of things that don't fit into this category. Paul encourages them to think on these things, to consider these things. It it reminds me of Hebrews 12, where where Paul says to, to, uh, to cast off every weight and sin that so easily entangles. Maybe not sin per se, but simply unhelpful, drags on the Christian life. So what habits, what rhythms, what preferences, what enjoyments do you entertain that are not true and honorable and just, and pure. Where those exist, cut them out. They're not helpful for life in Christ. Don't spend mental energy entertaining what is not true and what is not honorable and what is not just and what is not lovely, what is not beautiful. So I think it's right for us to say, listen to good music, eat good food, Enjoy good wine if you want. Enjoy the things God has put on this earth. And as we do so, with the mind of Christ, we glorify Him for giving us good gifts. With Christ as your surpassing treasure, your surpassing value, be about truth and honor. Injustice, wherever it may be found. Jared prayed this morning. We can identify evil wherever it's found. In our own hearts, in our own homes, perhaps in our own church, in our own country for sure. And we can identify right and honorable and true and lovely, beautiful things wherever they may be found. Pursue purity and beauty and excellence. And don't just think about them, but practice them. Verse 9 is a call to put verse 8 into practice. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Not merely mental exercise. But we don't understand what Paul is saying until we put it into practice. The Philippians have learned and received and heard from Paul all kinds of ways to live out the gospel. How to suffer well. The way of Christ. How to live totally dependent on him. How to be completely content, as he will say later in chapter 4. This is a letter consumed with the outworking of the gospel. And I think the theme, of the, the theme of the letter, chapter 127, captures that well. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So it's no surprise that Paul concludes here on a note of practice. Not of content, but of practice. Practice working out. Christian, an earthquake has happened in you. The power of God is the gospel and it it has happened in you as an earthquake. It's made you a new creation. So as you live out the gospel, pursue unity, pursue joy, pursue peace, pursue excellence in the God of peace. We'll be with you. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for the words that you give us. Here, not full of of gospel content, God, but, but words full of teaching us how to live, how to live this life that's always difficult. We pray for your help. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your grace because we are forgetful and we come here every Sunday and we have sin to confess. And we need to be reminded of what we forgot from last week. So God, would you have mercy on us as we, in our frailty, but by the power of the Spirit, attempt to live out the earthquake of the gospel that has happened in us. We pray now as we move to Uh, to participate in the Lord's Supper as we partake of the body and the blood that we would be reminded of what has happened for us in Christ. We might be reminded of that earthquake. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit that guides us. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.